Uh, So the reading is from Exodus chapter 23, starting at verse 20. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion, since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you to bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Well, thank you, Sarah, and it'd be really helpful if everyone uh, can look up their Bible or have in the leaflet that you've got the passage and a sermon outline there, and that'll be really helpful for you as we go through. Let's pray. Our loving and gracious God, such a privilege to come now and to listen to you. So we pray, speak, speak by your Holy Spirit, speak in these recorded words, speak through me, speak into our hearts so that we would worship you and know you. Amen. Okay, so today we come to what must be one of the most amazing chapters in all of the Bible, the day when 
God lets some people up to Mount Sinai and God sits with them and has a meal with them. Right? This really is a high point in the book of Exodus because in this chapter it's as if God's people are lifted up to heaven though actually it's God who comes down to them. So it's this amazing moment and yet most people, most Christians aren't even aware that it actually happened. Uh, which is a great pity because in this Bible it tells us what God is really like, it tells us what God wants of us and tells us what's the purpose in our life. That's a good question, isn't it? Have you ever wondered that? I went to a gym once. Uh, there was a brief period in my life when I was a signed up member of a gym, three months. And uh, I remember being interviewed by the, the um, fitness instructor who was gonna work out a routine for me. And after some preliminary questions, he sort of looked at me and then said, what's the purpose of your life? And I just looked at him and said, to serve God, what's yours? And he said, no one's ever said that before. And he didn't know what to do. Um, the first question of the Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? By which is meant, what's the fundamental existential question of humanity, why are we here? And the answer is, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what this chapter is all about. This chapter comes as a climax to everything that's happened before. God has rescued his people through plague and Passover and Red Sea. And everything that God had been doing then was, was for this, so that he could gather his people to himself, so that he could bring people to himself, so that he could be with them. Do you remember that's why God revealed his name to them? Um, and the reason why you tell someone your name is so that they can know you. And God revealed his name as I am who I am so that people could know him and glorify him and enjoy him. And that's why God rescued them with mighty power and outstretched arms so that they would be his people and that God would dwell with them and be their God. Do you remember the start of the scene around Mount Sinai back in chapter 19? God says, I brought you out like an eagle and I carried you on an eagle's wings and then he says, I've brought you to myself. That's the goal. And now in chapter 24, the reason why God brought them to himself was so that they could enter his glory and live with him and be with him forever. Not just yet, Angie. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Um, so that he could be with them. Uh, that's very important. You see, God's not some vague force. He's not an impersonal idea. He's not watching us from a distance. He is our maker, and he's intimately involved in every cell of your body and every moment of your life. His name is I am who I am, and he has made you for himself. He has made us to glorify him and to, and to enjoy him forever. Now, the way Christians normally talk about this is of having an intimate, personal relationship with God, right? And there's something right about that because we don't want to depersonalize God. We know how deeply he loves us. We know he's our father. We can bring to him our deepest concerns or our most trivial concerns. And yet that language, you know, personal relationship with God, there's something intensely irritating about that too <laughs> because God is not our buddy. He's not my equal. It's because of his majesty and power that our relationship is described as entering into his glory. So the language stretches at that point 
But if we stick with that language of relationship, the passage answers two questions which we can ask. First of all, what kind of relationship does God want to have with us? And secondly, how does God bring us into that relationship? All right, what kind of relationship? Well, the chapter tells us that it's a relationship of deep closeness. It comes out in three ways. Firstly, a closeness that's intimate and enjoyable. Everything in the chapter moves towards this. If you look at chapter 24, verse one, when God invites Moses and Aaron and Israel's 70 elders to come up and meet with him. Seven times in the chapter, God invites people to come up, come up, come up, because God can't come down to where the people are or he would consume them. But he keeps calling people up to himself. And then after the sacrifices of verses four to eight, we come to these astounding words. Thanks, Angie, in verses nine to 10. Have a look. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, there's Aaron's sons, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, clear as the sky itself. But God didn't raise his hand against the leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, they ate, and they drank. Now meals, of course, especially meals with friends and family, are one of the greatest and most intimate delights in life. On Friday, um, our, my second daughter Lillian turned 23 and we went down to McLaren Vale and at that beautiful Italian outdoor place, Pizza Tecca, we were there under the gum trees in the beautiful Adelaide weather with family, enjoying this rich, rich Italian meal. The waiter was Italian, he, he said vanilla, and we talked about that, how he said it, and he came from a place near Rome, you know, across from Rome, and you know, we talked to him, and it was an intimate, enjoyable time when we shared stories, we laughed, it was a wonderful time together. Well, here in verses nine to 11, God invites these 70 or so people into his presence to eat with them and to drink with them. Isn't that amazing? It is. And what makes it doubly amazing is what it says in verse 11, that God didn't raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. That's the really amazing thing about the scene because no one can look at God and live. When Israel first gathered around Mount Sinai, they only stood at a distance. They heard God's voice. They didn't see him, but that was enough to terrify them and to beg that it wouldn't happen anymore. Moses, you go up. Well, now 70 of Israel's elders are up close. They not only hear God, they see him. And the astounding thing is they're not destroyed. They see God and live. This is an absolutely stunning moment. But notice when we're not told what they saw what God looked like. In fact, we're only told the surroundings under God's feet, and even that is not directly described. It's under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, or some translations have sapphire. Hard to translate, a blue stone. Clear as the sky itself. However obliquely it's described, somehow by God's grace and power, God lets them in, and they see something of God and they eat and they drink with the living God and it's astounding. This is like a picture for us of what God has in mind for us. To be able to sit with God in his presence and to eat and drink at the wedding supper of the lamb. This is a picture of heaven. It's like a taste of heaven. Our friends, we can't make enough of this. 
We talk of the cross, we talk of forgiveness, and that's right. But forgiveness is not the end point of where God is taking us. We must not stop with, like, cease and just get stuck on forgiveness. The purpose of forgiveness is something else. The purpose of forgiveness is feasting. God grants us freedom of sins, not so that we'll just have a clean conscience and live a happy life, but so that we can sit down with God and enjoy his presence in his company face to face. That is the relationship which God has in mind for us. Friends, it is one which is intimate and enjoyable. And notice what makes this relationship particularly enjoyable is is secondly, because it's one of mutual blessing, where words of blessing are given and received. And that is one of the key delights of any relationship, you'll know this, being able to speak the truth to one another and to be able to receive it from one another. And that's what happens here. Although it must be said, in our, in our relationship with God, the words of blessing are unequal for the simple reason that God isn't our equal. So the relationship with God is one of mutual blessing, but at the same time, unequal blessing. For our part, we don't give as much as God gives us, but from our part, what we give him, the words of blessing, are those of worship. That's what God tells the Israelites to do, chapter 23, verse 25. This is the whole point of God bringing his people to Sinai, that they would come and worship him in the desert at his mountain. This is what Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may come and worship me on this mountain. This is what's reiterated in the commandments. You shall have no other gods but me. You shall worship me, you see. And the reason for our worship is grounded in who God is. He's God. And not just that, but more particularly because out of all the nations of the earth, he who is God has saved us so that we can be his very own treasured possession. And despite, therefore, all the temptations to distraction and other alternative worship that we or the Israelites may find, God calls us into a relationship of fidelity with him, of faithfulness, where he alone deserves our worship. And it's right and appropriate to put words into our worship of him. That's the blessing that we give God, the blessing from our side. From God's side, God speaks the words of blessing back to his people. And the words of blessing that God speaks are all through chapter 23, and God's words of blessing are words of faithfulness and promise. Everything that God says here is almost a restatement of his promise he made to Abraham all those years before. He's effectively reiterating the promises again, I am going to bring you into the land. It will have the same borders that I promised Abraham. And then he tells them how God's gonna bring them in. He will guide them with his angel. And God himself's gonna clear out the land for them, not all at once, because then the wild animals would come in, that'd be another problem for them. But so long as they're faithful to him, God will promise to bless them. He says, I'm gonna bless you as you come into the land, and I'm gonna bless you when you are in the land. My blessing will be on your food, on your water, on your children, on all the years of your life, on your security, on your prosperity. Words of blessing. And again, these are promises of blessing which God has reiterated to us through Jesus. He promises us riches in store for us in heaven. What does it say? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of what God has prepared for those who love him. And then God also gives us promises of how he will bring us there. He will look after us and he will guide us and get us there. 
And through these words, God keeps speaking to us through these words of Exodus because he calls us into a relationship which is ongoing and continuously alive. And his words are integral in this. You you may not have noticed, twice in the chapter 24, there's an emphasis on the words of God being written down. First by Moses, verse four, then by God himself, verse 12. Why are God's words written down? Well, they're not just old words recorded for the sake of posterity or historical interest. All the words of God are breathed, are the breathed out word of God, they're preserved for us by God because they are the means through which God still breathes into our lives and speaks to us today, 2 Timothy 3.16. Hebrews 4 says, all God's words are living and active, they are sharp, they are incisive in our lives. In other words, the scriptures are eternally relevant for us. Through these words, God continues to speak to us, reveal himself in his friendship with us and draw us to himself. That's why we have growth groups where we look at the Bible. Okay. Now, just as we must not simply stop with forgiveness, we must also not simply stop with the words. All right, the words are there to draw us into deeper relationship with God, to make us long for that great supper at the end of the age when we will sit with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That day, the day which we look forward to when we'll enjoy the longest feast of fellowship with one another and God, that is what we're made for. We won't be doing Bible study then. It points us. Okay. And that meal, that relationship, living it, that is the goal of our life. We are made for that relationship with God. And if we're in doubt, we only need to look at the end of chapter 24. This is the bit Sarah didn't read. It's there in your leaflets or in your Bibles, right? Moses goes up the mountain. The cloud of God's presence covers the mountain. The glory of God immerses the top of the mountain. And in verse 17, we're told the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. And Moses is up there and he's in it for 40 days and for 40 nights. And again, this tells us the goal of salvation isn't just forgiveness, it's not just a clean conscience, it is what Moses experienced, that we would enter God's glory. It's that we would be covered by and permeated with the glory of God. That is the kind of friendship that God desires with us. Now, that's mind-blowing. And you think, how did Moses survive? And the question is, How could this relationship happen? How does it happen? And the answer is twofold. It happens through the blood of the covenant and it happens through the mediator of the covenant. First of all, the blood. You may have noticed I jumped over verses four to eight in chapter 24. How is it possible that these elders can be eating and drinking in the presence of God without being nuked? It has to do with the blood of the covenant. What happens there is that before these men can go up the mountain, Moses is told to build an altar, just as God commands, as a symbol of God's presence, right? And then he sets up 12 stone pillars as a symbol of the people of God. So now you've got the two parties of the covenant symbolically represented. And then he has some young bull sacrifices and he saves their blood. 
and he takes half of it and he throws the blood against the altar and he takes half of the, the other half of the blood and he throws it out over the people. He splatters it all over them, right? It's pretty unhygienic, isn't it? You know, you're sitting there, the people of God, and you've got flecks of bull blood now through your hair and on your nose. What's going on? What's going on is a covenant ratification ceremony. God is sealing the covenant he's made. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is a word which doesn't really have an English equivalent. It's a bit like a marriage covenant where there's a mutual commitment of heart entered into, but it's not like a marriage covenant at all because God is not an equal partner. He made us and he initiates every part of the relationship from beginning to end. Some people say it's like a contract that's binding on both parties, but a contract's a legal term, it's cold. It doesn't come close to expressing the warmth and the love shared in a covenant. And it's, it's God's desire that through the covenant we would come into his friendship and enter into his embrace. There is a covenant ceremony, and we've been moving towards this since chapter 19. You know, when Israel first tells the Israelites that he has brought them to himself to be his very own people, he mentions the covenant he's making with them. In chapter 20, he spells out the covenant requirements of Israel, of that relationship in the Ten Commandments. They're unpacked in more detail in that very long sermon we had last week, right? Chapters 21 to 23. After spelling out Israel's covenant requirements, then God spells out his side of the covenant, chapter 23, verse 20 onwards, all the promises he makes to them. And Moses reports now at this ceremony all the words, and, he, and, and the people give a preliminary agreement to them, chapter 24, verse 3. Moses writes down the terms in everything that God's told them, verse 4, and then he ratifies the covenant that he throws on, uh, with the blood that he throws on both parties, right? on God in the altar and the, the people um, out there and in the pillars. Now, what's, why the blood? Why does he need the blood to ratify the covenant? What's that mean? Back in Genesis 15, we read how God first entered into a covenant with Abraham. The literal wording is he cut a covenant. So when in the Bible you read made a covenant, it means cut a covenant. What happened with Abraham was that Abraham was told to take a bull and cut it in half and then arrange um, the two halves on the ground and then God appeared and symbolically kind of moved between the parts, in effect to say, if I break my terms of this covenant, may that happen to me. So it's a very formal way of saying, I'm in it for keeps. Well, here in Exodus 24, the blood of the covenant first and foremost signals exactly this. God has formally bound himself to Israel in a sacred life, death, eternal relationship. That's the first significance of the blood. The next is that the blood is the solution that God provides for sin. Because although he's rescued them from Egypt, they cannot stand before God as they are because of their sin. Now, we know that sin separates us from God. We know from Genesis that the wages of sin is death. The only way God can bring us into his presence is if our sins are covered so that the only way, and the only way they're gonna be covered is through death. If you're going to have a relationship with God, someone has to die for your sins. You cannot enter God's glory as you are. And that's why Moses splashes the blood in both directions. He splashes it on the altar 
so that God's holiness and his righteousness are satisfied and he splashes it on the people as a massive act of grace and covering. And this sort of terrible and dreadful reminder at the same time that they are forgiven, but at a cost. Because blood is the very graphic description of death which is required for forgiveness to happen. You know, you, you say, um, my life is in my blood. No, no, no. In terms of your relationship with God, it's not the blood that's in you that is your life. It's the blood that's been shed for you that is your life. And the blood poured out shows us something of what it takes to bring us into God's presence, something of his determination to bring us into his presence as a graphic reminder of the searching purity and seriousness of God's glory. And we've seen it, haven't we? We've seen it in the Passover lamb and the story of the Exodus. We've seen it in the Old Testament sacrifices. Mark's gonna be talking about those next week. And of course, we know that it points us to the day when the Son of God pours out his blood for us. This is really important. On the night before he dies, he takes that cup and he says, and listen to the words, they come from this chapter. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. It should be on the screen, Angie. Okay. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. These are the words from Exodus, except he inserts the word my. This is the blood of the covenant, my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. He's thinking about the meal, the meal that God is taking us to. And in saying those words, he fulfills every Old Testament sacrifice and he opens up a new covenant, not just with any blood, but with my blood, the blood of God. He gives us a glimpse of why he's doing it when he says, I'm really longing for the day I will sit down and I will eat and drink of the fruit of the vine with you in the kingdom of God. That is what we are made for. To glorify God in his presence, to enjoy him forever. And the way that it was made open for us was through the blood of the covenant. It must be received, we must receive it, but we can only enter into that, um, to that meal through that blood. Okay, there's one last meaning of the blood. If I was to jump ahead and steal a look at uh, three verses from next week's passage, Mark, good on you Mark, is uh, gonna cover seven chapters of Exodus next week. Um, the, the, the tabernacle. Okay, read ahead, 25 to 31. But three verses from next week's passage, in Exodus 9, verse 19 to 21, there's an almost identical repetition of blood being splattered two ways, first on the altar, then on the people. But significantly, the people that it's splattered on, being, the people being set apart, consecrated, are the priests. Here in chapter, or back in chapter 19, God already said that all of Israel were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to introduce God to the world and the world to God. They were to be mediators, you see. Well, in chapter 23, given what God does with the blood here in chapter 23 is almost identical with what he will do later when he consecrates priests, by splattering the people, God is showing that he's setting apart the whole nation of Israel as priests to the world. Now, 
this is really important. Do you see yourself as a priest consecrated by God? You say, no, 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 that's, that's like the clergy, isn't it? No, 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 it's you, it's us. The Reformation had this principle of the um, priesthood of all believers. Um, the idea is that when God saves you, he has more than you in mind. You see, when God saved Israel, he had more than Israel in mind. They were to be priests to the world. When God saves you, he has more than you in mind. You are to be priests to the world as well. 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, Peter picks up the very language of Exodus 19. You are a chosen people. You who believe in Jesus, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Those words are straight out of God's commissioning of Israel in Exodus 19. You are a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, God is so committed uh, to seeing people from around the world enter into rich fellowship with him that not only has God provided Jesus' blood to cleanse them, but through that same blood, he has set apart, splattered his people to be mediators between the world and God. We are the priests. We don't bear sin, only Jesus does that, but we're priests in the sense of we need to introduce people to God. So that if God, you see now, has taken the blood of Jesus and he has smeared it on the doorframe of your life so that you will be passed over in judgment, and if he is, and, sorry, if that is true, with Jesus' blood, what he has also done is he has splattered you with it to set you apart as priests. Both go together. To be marked with his blood is to be marked with his blood in every sense. He sets us apart for a relationship that's sacred to both of us. He provides a solution for our sin, but he sets us apart as his priests for the sake of others to come into this relationship. That is how God establishes a covenant with us. He establishes a covenant with us so that we may enter into this close, eternal unequal, privileged relationship with God where we will one day eat with him in his presence, in his glory. And if we doubt that we are really able to do that, sinners that we are, if in the end you think, no, I don't think I could do that, this passage gives us one last confidence and with this I close. Our last confidence is not just that God's marked us with Jesus' blood of the covenant, but that in Jesus we have a mediator of the covenant. Someone who stands before God on our behalf to represent us before God. Now, where does it come out in Exodus? In Exodus 24, it's Moses. Although the 70 elders get to see God, they only see something of God's feet. But it is God, sorry, it is Moses alone who's invited in verse two and verse 12 to the very top of the mountain to come into the complete presence of the glory of God. The 70 elders weren't to come up to the very top. The people weren't to come up at all. Everything rests on Moses. Only he goes up. Now, what's this mean? Well, it's very telling if we are to have a relationship with God, we must have a mediator, someone who goes it alone on our behalf. Here it's Moses, in the New Testament, it's Jesus who alone enters heaven on our behalf as our priest. 1 Timothy chapter two. There is one God and there is only one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Ultimately, this is our confidence. 
because if you have a mediator, your acceptance rests on his work for you on your behalf. Your failures don't disqualify you, nor do your successes commend you. It's not about you, it's about him and the work he does in representing you. It's all about him. And in Jesus, we have a, me a mediator, a representative who has lived his life for us, who has died his death for us, who has risen and ascended, not to the top of the mountain, but into heaven itself to bring us with him into the glory and the presence of God. And that is what we're made for, friends, to know God, to enter his presence, and to enjoy him forever. And God established a strong and sacred relationship with everyone who enters that covenant. He establishes it by the blood of Christ shed for us and by his work as a mediator. And it's this strong, strong bond of love between us, forged in a covenant in who Jesus is in his death for us. This is our assurance. It's stronger than anything we might face. It is secure. It is stronger than anything else in your life or mine. It is stronger than any suffering that you or I are facing or will face. It is stronger than our sin. It is stronger than death. And everyone who enters into that covenant knows the security of God's love. And we know why we exist. We, we're not made for popularity. We're not made for success. We are made to enjoy this divine friendship. And he has given us his son so that we might enter into it. So you see what you must do. We must enter in. So if you haven't entered into that relationship, then do it. Confess your sin. Turn from whatever else you're worshipping because it will be inadequate and you'll know it deeply in your heart that it is and turn to Jesus and come into the forgiveness and fellowship for which you were made. And if you've made that step, then worship the Lord your God in your life. Worship him and know him and enjoy him. Spend time praying Spend time listening to him. Spend time cultivating that relationship. And if perhaps God seems distant and it still feels to you like you are at the bottom of the mountain, then be encouraged from this story because know that God has higher and better things planned for you. It's been guaranteed by God and it's been signed in Jesus' blood. He wants you. He wants relationship with you. And he's made it possible, so enter in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this beautiful passage. And Lord, thank you for Jesus, for his blood, which not only deals with our sin and ratifies the covenant, and satisfies your demands for purity, but consecrates us as priests so that for others' sake, they too may enter in. Help us to live for you, for your glory, and hasten that day when you will come and take us home that we may celebrate and share in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. <laughs>